Sword and Laser is brought to you by you. If you get a dollar's worth of value from the show, how about giving us a dollar back? Head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. And Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of sci-fi and fantasy, and of course, amazing discussions from fans just like you. Uh, Today, we're bringing you one of those author interviews. We're happy to be joined by the author of our latest book club pick, The Goblin Emperor, Sarah Monette, or should we say Catherine Addison? No, really, which should we say? (laughs) Sarah is fine. Okay, good. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about the process by which you started being a professional author? Mm. Uh, Well, okay, yes. I had been writing stories. Well, I had been telling myself stories, I think, for as long as I was, you know, had this, the verbal skills to do so. Mm -hmm. I started writing them down when I was 11 or so and just kept writing them down and writing them down and writing them down. Um, and eventually that turns into writing novels. <laughs> <laughs> the it sounds so easy when you put it that way. Yeah. Um, and at some point around, at, at some point I also started writing short stories. Um, it's easier to sell short stories than it is novels. Um, partly because there are mo- more markets, partly because it just moves faster. Um, short stories are mostly going to magazines that, you know, have to come out every month or two months mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. quarterly. So they need a constant supply of material, which p- book publishers do too, but they don't need as much and they don't need it as fast. Um, and short short story markets are much, are also be more specialized. And therefore, if you have a particular a story that does a particular thing and there's a market that wants that thing, you know to send it there. Um, So I started selling short stories, which doesn't, uh, the short stories don't, it doesn't actually prepare you or help you in writing novels at all because they're not the same thing. They're, Hmm. I mean, they're related things, Um, but it's, you know, it's like the difference between a tiger and a house cat. You know, they're both cats, but, they're not the same animal. Novels and short stories are are very different. Um, but it's good practice for selling, um, for getting used to how it works, for, for toughening yourself up a little bit, um, for getting your name out there so that people know who you are, so that when you start, you know, when you query agents, you can say, I've published this, this, and this. Um, when the agents query publishers, they can say, she's published this, this, and this, um, which, and eventually, you know, you, you, you come, it's a little bit like Zeno's paradox where you, you're never at, you, you're always, you can always cut the distance in half. Um, <laughs> but, but you'll never get there. <laughs> exactly. You will never get there. Um, although sometimes you do. Um, mm-hmm. the first book I, 
I sold, um, which was under my my own name, which is Sarah Monette, uh, Melusine, was something I'd been working on since I was 19. Um, it took me 15 years to get it into wow. shape where it could actually be, you know, read by the public and not cause me to die of embarrassment. Um, so in one sense, it the process of getting published, um, when I started from the time I started writing short stories to the time I sold that novel was about four years. Looked at for the other way, the time it took me to write a publishable novel is more like uh, 15 to 20. So mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on the metric you want to use. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting, too, because I always feel like people say writing short stories is is a good way to kind of get into the mindset of novel writing. Um, but it sounds like it, it probably just depends on the person as well. But that was definitely not your not yeah. not the case. Well, that you had it depends. OK, it depends a little bit on how you write short stories. If you think of them as just small novels. Yes, that if you're just writing stories that do the same thing novels do, but shorter then yes, I suppose you could do it that way. Um, I tend to think of short stories as being stories that I, you couldn't tell at novel length, and you can't tell them like a novel. Um, so that for me, yeah, there's no, I mean, obviously, every short story you write, you're practicing putting your sentences together and practicing, you know, transitions and exposition and, and character development and all of the things that you need for a novel. But the story itself, I don't find them similar when I'm writing. Well, that's probably the best, the best place to, to leave that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's get into some of the uh, questions we got from our audience at the Goodreads forum. Gary has the first one for us, and he notes that the Goblin Emperor, while being fantasy, is very political. Characters use magic, but very briefly. Uh, yep. And other books seem to be more along the lines of typical fantasy that you've written under Sarah Monette. So he wants to know, are there differences in themes in the books written as Sarah or under Catherine, or is that totally unrelated to the types of books you write? Um, <laughs> the, the answer is yes and no, because the books I published under my own name are quite different from The Goblin Emperor, but that has nothing to do with the pseudonym. The Goblin Emperor was, was going to be the next book I wrote, no matter what my name was. Um, but the, my first four books, which are... Um, a series that go together are also very political. I seem to write political plots, even though every time, every time I start a book, I swear to myself that this time I will not do that to myself. I will not, I will not. <laughs> and then I do. Um, they're very You're just political. too attracted to the intrigue, I guess. Uh, something, I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, <laughs> but so they're very political. They are, on the other hand, very interested in magic and how magic works, you know, in this world, um, and what being some able to work magic does to you. Uh, they're much more 
they're they're much more sort of engaged with the standard the standard set of secondary world fantasy tropes where you whereas in the goblin emperor i just kind of ignored them um in those first four books you can see where i'm arguing with them and trying to pick them apart um they're also much darker much more violent and they have a well they have a lot more sex in them hmm so you know, sorry, fair, my my little my little goblin ears just perked up. <laughs> yes, that's either you know fair warning or um, a, a big clear beacon saying, "Come over here, come over here," uh, depending on how you look at it. So you know, they so are. Have a, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I was go just going to say my my kind of follow up question is if if something like the Goblin Emperor is 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 very much a political story. Why make it fantasy at all? Like, why not just have it be an, an alt history story, for example? Um, why do you like to add those fantastical elements? <laughs> okay, the very, very honest answer here is because I'm lazy and I don't want to do the research. Ah, I love it. I love it. That's great. It, so instead of having to dig into Renaissance history, you just put some goblin ears out there and everybody's like, oh, well, it could be that way. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find the work of world building much more uh, i enjoy it i enjoy world building passionately it's one of the one of the reasons i write fantasy at all so um so i love doing it i I would be looking for excuses to do it anyway and um partly because i didn't i did not want to do the research necessary to write anything historical um partly because the setup i wanted the, the setup i needed um, okay, the problem here is that the this and this is not a spoiler because you know this part already. The um, what the 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 family situation that Maya finds himself in, where all of his brothers have been killed and he's suddenly the emperor, but there's one of them has an heir, and this is you know a little problematic. Mm-hmm is the reverse of the Wars of the Roses, where Edward the Black Prince died, and he had a whole passel of brothers left, but he also had a son. And so the son inherited, grew up to be Richard II, um, made terrible, terrible decisions, and you know, ended up getting deposed and murdered. But so because the, the rules of inheritance work the opposite way, and they have to work the opposite way for my story to work. Um, I really did need to just invent a society to go around them so that it is rather than trying to find somewhere in the, the vast spread of Earth's cultures over the past four millennia, um, mm-hmm. where where the rules of inheritance actually worked the way I need them to. I don't know if there is one Um but so there's that. Yeah, it could be it could be taking a square peg and trying to put it into a round hole at that mm-hmm. point. So it's sometimes it's just easier to carve your own square hole um, yes. for that to work into. Uh, and then Joanna has a question, too, that's kind of along similar lines. Um, Joanna says, so she's, meaning you, uh, been <laughs> fairly adamant that she might one day write a novel set in the same universe as the Goblin Emperor. Uh, she's not interested in writing a sequel, and she doesn't have any plans right now. So what else is she working on? Possibly another, possibly other optimistic, but still complex second world fantasies <laughs> just set neither in this world or Maya's? Um, 
Well, honestly, at the moment, I am struggling with some fairly un- unpleasant, though non-life-threatening health problems that have made it, um, it difficult to impossible to write at all. Uh, so oh, I'm hoping um, – well, no. it's. I mean, things are getting better, so – we're, we're hopefully coming back up out of this sort of, I, I don't need to, uh, I, I tend to think of it for some reason in um, metaphors from Pilgrim's Progress, even though I am, um, <laughs> I, I do not share John Bunyan's beliefs, but it does, it does feel a little bit like the Slough of Despond. Um, so at the moment, I don't know either. Um, certainly it's very likely that I will write, it's very likely that I will invent another world. Um, I don't know, I I don't have any idea whether the next book is going to be like the Goblin Emperor or if I'm going to revert to type and write something that's dark, bloody, and, and full of sex. Um, we will all get to see, I guess. (laughs) Do you Our feel next pressure? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Hmm. I was just going to say, do you feel pressure uh, since the, by the way, congratulations on the Nebula uh, nomination? Oh, thank um, you. But but once that happens, is there more pressure to write in that same universe? Or do you feel like that has been, that is like bookended nicely and you don't need to work in that universe as much anymore? Um, I, okay. As far as I am concerned, this is a standalone novel. I, I conceived of it as a standalone novel because I'd just written a four-book series, and I needed to not do that again, um, at least for a while, because it's exhausting, and it, it becomes more – the longer you go, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, so for me, it, this was a one-off, and I invented the world, like I said, to support the things I needed to make my plot work. Uh, it's just because I enjoy world building and tend to, to, to do it when I'm trying to think of something else to do, um, that the world became very elaborate, or possibly just because that's the way my brain works. Um, so as far as, you know, as far as I was concerned, that's, that's all there is. You know, this story in this world it is complete in itself like like a Fabergé egg Um, certainly many 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 people are want a sequel Um, and that that's very flattering as far as I'm concerned you know it is very flattering when when people want more of what you've written but it doesn't change the fact that there isn't a sequel there just there just isn't Um, it is, I mean, it is possible that I'll write other books in this world. There are other, I mean, there are, there are other plots that I could do. There are other people I'd like to spend more time with. Um, there are big chunks of the big, big chunks of the map that we don't know anything about. So there's plenty of room, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen. Um, well, and that is actually Dor- you're anticipating Doreen's question. Her her question was, <laughs> uh, would you consider a parallel storyline from the point of view of another character? Hmm. Um. I mean, certainly there are characters in that book whom I would I would like to to get their viewpoint too. You know, I would I would like to know. 
I, I would like to, you know, to know what's going on below stairs um, that, that Maya is, doesn't ever get to see. Um, I, you know, I'd like to know, I'd like to know a lot of the things that Xevit knows, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he's a great, he's a great character, by the way. One of my He's favorites. sort of the Carson of this Downton Abbey that is the Elketh Murad, isn't he? Mm. He was a lot of fun to write. Um, I, I, he, he sort of emerged, um, he, you know, they got to the point where Maya is looking around and realizing that here he is at the Unthalanese court and he has no idea what to do and he doesn't want to ask Sethoris and Xevic kind of stepped forward and said, hi, I'm standing right here. (laughs) And he just. he's great and he was fun to write and I like him a lot and and I would like to be able to you know write something that that sees the political structure from his point of view I think that would be really interesting Um, I'd love to I don't know about Bachelor but Uh, but Kala, I would, you know, I, I like Kala very much. I'd like to spend more time with him. Um, you know what I like about Sevet? I feel like he allows the the reader to to get that exposition without mm-hmm. it feeling at all forced. You know, he's there to explain the things that confuse both the reader and Maya, and yes. in a really easy, great, you know, fun way. Well. I, I, it's not always true that the protagonist is a stand-in for the reader, but in this case, it really is that the reader, you know, the, the person reading is like poor Maya, hopelessly confused by this extremely complicated and dangerous world that he knew existed, but didn't doesn't know the rules of and doesn't know the players. And that being the case, you you have to have somebody to do the heavy lifting. Um, and in that, yes, in that case, it is Xevit, and it is a, a blessing upon us all <laughs> that he turned out <laughs> to be really good at it. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question comes from Trike, uh, and he says, uh, lots of us have speculated that uh, that she's based it on a particular society, but the guesses we've made are all over the place, from England to Italy to China to Russia. Did she have a particular era in mind or, or a place to use as a template? And also, uh, and I guess we maybe kind of went into this question already, uh, why is there so little magic and other typical fantasy type stuff in the novel? Okay. Um question two questions here so question one um again i'm lazy i don't like i don't it's not true that i don't like to do research because i read a great deal of history and enjoy it quite a lot but i don't like the kind of data mining research you do when you're looking for how to write a story in this in this setting so I was, uh, as I always do when I world build, I was um, cherry picking from the various cultures that I know about. Um, my my re- my research specialty when I was getting a PhD is Renaissance theater, so I know a lot about Renaissance England um, and can sort of bring that in without any without any trouble. Uh, 
Um, I was also thinking about the French Revolution and, you know, how do you, how do you go from an absolute monarchy to something that isn't ridiculously oppressive with, you know, 99% of the population having no say in how they're governed to something that is more just and equitable without, you know, everybody having to get their heads chopped off. So I was thinking about France. Um, there is a lot, there is a, a fair amount of Russia, especially in the goblins. That was not planned. Um, they just, they just became very Russian in my head. Um, possibly it's because the, the names did start getting like the names in a Russian novel. Um, even for me with the, the complicated and the, why are there so many parts to them and who is this person again? Um, also obviously Japan, um, the Niseshos are obviously Natsuki. That's not meant to be a secret. Um, and that's just because, A, I love Natsuki, and B, again, I, I needed something right there that could convey a very particular message, and a Natsuki was what I thought of. So, you know, so I guess basically the answer is that if you think you see some echo of a particular culture in, in the book, you're correct. Um, but <laughs> also the audiobook does kind of help move that mm. along a little bit because if I if I remember correctly, um, the the goblins do use a, a Russian accent ah. um, when, <laughs> when they're being read. So I don't know if that also, was intentional or if that just happened accidentally. Um, but um, yeah, that's how it sounds. That would have been the narrator's decision, and clearly it was a good one. Well, yeah, and wow. I, I think there are there are plenty of I mean there are plenty of clues like the samovar. Um, mm -hmm. that I, I was thinking of Russia, um, although also slightly, um, uh, uh, I mean, uh, there are other cultures in there too. Um, so yeah, if you think you see something from a particular culture, you're probably right, but n none of the cultures in the novel are based on any particular earth culture in their entirety. It's all, it's all sort of stirred together um because pot. yeah well and and because it doesn't make any sense to assume that the elves in this universe would somehow by parallel evolution have the culture of the court of versailles under louis Catorze. that makes no sense that why would that happen um in the same way that it makes no sense to assume that the uh the goblins have the culture of Russia under Peter the Great. Um, so, I, which is why I have no qualms about simply using the things that I know about, about England and about French history and about Italian history and Russian history and, and et cetera onwards um, to, to build something that isn't any of them. So. It's very comforting to be able to tell people arguing in a thread that they're all right. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. You don't get to do that you very don't get often. To do that very yeah. Whoa, whoa, we were just about to say the exact same sentence at the end of the time. That was funny. Because <laughs> you don't. We don't get to tell people that very often. So No. <laughs> Our so next question. question 
Oh, there was go ahead. another part to that question. Oh, that's right. That was there true. was this, the part about magic. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and that uh, kind, kind of the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, I knew from the beginning that Kala was a wizard. That was, I mean, that was, that's what they were doing is that you have one guard who's a soldier and one guard who's a wizard. Um, and then he just didn't use magic and he just didn't use magic and he kept not using magic. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, he shrugs at me and says, eh, no, I don't need to. Why am I going to do that if I don't have to? So it, so it is very true that apparently in this world, wizards don't use their powers very often. They've clearly made choices about um, – I can't I can't think of the words the, 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 the there's a term for it um, and I can't think of what it is but you know they've clearly made the choice to disengage from the world and study you know the, embrace the life of theory instead of the life of practice um, mm. so that no they don't use their they don't use magic very often I suspect that they all know how to do a lot more than what we see, but they, they don't practice it unless, unless they kind of have to. Um, and that, like I said, that wasn't, that wasn't a conscious decision. Um, I like writing wizards. I like writing about magic. It's fun. Um, and inventing magic systems is, is another, again, it's a part of world building and I'm very fond of it, but, um, yeah, they just, <laughs> they weren't interested. They just didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. They just didn't want to. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I mean, I, obviously I have spent a lot of time as a professional writer, which I, yeah, which is, I've been for a little over 10 years, um, thinking about fantasy tropes and why we write fantasies the way we do and, is there some way to write a fantasy that isn't a quest, which obviously this isn't a quest. I have succeeded in one goal. Um, and yeah, writing a fantasy that doesn't have a lot of magic in it is another way of saying, you know, writing secondary world fantasy, you don't have to, you don't have to ticky all the ticky boxes. Um, you know, you don't have to have magic and dragons in a quest. You could maybe, you know, not have magic. Um, Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, which is an excellent, excellent fantasy novel, has no magic at all. Just not there, there, there isn't any, but it's still definitely a fantasy. It's not alt history in any way. So, so there's, but there's some of that, but mostly it was just that the, <laughs> these, these wizards were not going to perform. They just weren't interested in it. They are not your clowns to amuse you. They do what no, they want. They are not my puppets. They do not dance yeah. on my strings. <laughs> Although, of course, they do. But I tend to I tend to treat writing as my subconscious, the, the nonverbal subconscious's way of getting to say something to my conscious brain. And therefore, when I get something like that, where the wizards kind of look at me and are like, "What? No." I, I tend to go with it on the assumption that that's what my back brain needs to do, um, which so far has worked pretty well. 
Now, our next question comes from John Toloni. Uh, we assume you are neither goblin nor emperor, but John still wants to know if any of Maya's experiences are based on any incidents from your own life. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I was a shy, geeky, socially awkward child. So the, the essential, the essential viewpoint poor Maya is stuck with is, is yes, familiar, um, specific incidents. No, I don't think so. I, I don't, I don't put my autobiography in my work that way. I, I do it in other ways, obviously, because most of my most of my protagonists are shy and awkward and geeky, very geeky. Um, <laughs> Which is probably why we all like them as well. I, Definitely, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, and that's, I mean, that's autobiographical. But the things that happen to them aren't. Gotcha. Emily goes on to ask, uh, how did you come up with all these wonderful but confusing names? <laughs> Are they based off of real language or did you just pull random Scrabble tiles out of a bag and put them together to make something pronounceable? <laughs> um, they are not based off a of real language. They are based off, um, there's a great thing uh, called the Language Construction Kit. It's online. You can find it. And it goes through, okay, these are the things you need to think about if you're going to invent a language. You know, these are the, these are the patterns that you need to decide how they work. Um, also, I, having studied um, French, Latin, Ancient Greek, Old English, Middle English, I know a certain amount about how, how to think about how language goes together. Um, so I, I invented my own language, but I did it with rules. Um, and there, and unlike real languages, this language follows its rules. Once you figure out a rule, you're, you're set. <laughs> I, I feel like we just learned a big top secret thing. Kidding? <laughs> yeah. I feel like telling us about this. This. Uh, this. What was it called? A language construction kit. If I'm the remembering language the construction kit, that is fascinating. I can't wait to go it's, look that up. It's later. very cool, um, and it's and if you are interested in um, that kind of thing, it's awesome because it does tell you, you know, all the at least a lot of the things you need to know if you if you want to do this, or even if you just think it's cool to mess around with, or you want to figure out how Tolkien did it, for heaven's sakes. Um, I mean, Tolkien has the advantage of being a trained linguist and hello, a genius, but, but you know, he was taking, he was doing kind of what I do <laughs> with my world building. He was saying, well, I like this piece of Welsh and this piece of Finnish, and I've put them in a language together. This is what they do. Um, so yeah, it's That's great. It, it's really cool. We have a friend of the show, um, David J. Peterson, who's created the languages for um, for Game of Thrones mm. and for um, a few other uh, sci-fi fantasy shows that, that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, and he's probably most famous for inventing Dothraki. Um, but he's, yeah, he's one of those people. He's just a, basically a genius linguist. Um, yeah. But now I'm going to be like, you used this tool, didn't you? That's how you figured this all out. I'm going to call you out, David J. Peterson. Um, I'm going to invent my own language and show you how it's done. No. <laughs> invent my own language and call you out in it. In, it yeah. in the language that no one but me understands. Yes. Very effective. 
All right. Our last question comes from Pablo. Uh, he says, being that Maya is such an open-minded serenity, do you see him doing radical changes as an emperor as he grows, like give women more power in the court or some kind of pseudo-democracy? Would he survive long if he does not change to become at least a little more ruthless? Those are good questions. Um, I think Maya certainly wants to institute change. You know, he wants women to have more options and more control over their own lives. You know, he wants for the middle class merchants to be able to have a say in their government. He wants to build this bridge so that the oppressed peasants in the silk growing um Silk growing estates can you know, vote with their feet and walk across the bridge to a better life. Um, not that it's going to work that way, but uh, he's 19 and an idealist. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happens after the end of this book. Yeah, you know, I can't tell you. I, I, I genuinely, sincerely don't know. Um, you know, I, I can certainly speculate that he's going to have a lot of trouble making those changes. Um, and I think also that, yes, he is going to have to learn to be a lot more ruthless. Um, he, you know, he very nearly gets into some very serious trouble just basically because he's he's too nice. Um, and yes, if you want to survive as an emperor, you really are going to have to work on that. I like to think that maybe even if he doesn't see any changes during his reign, that at least he's putting gears into motion that will make change for future emperors or empresses oh. down the line. Um, yeah. So that's just a positive thought, too. Yeah. No, I think it. I, I whatever happens in the reign of Edrahasavar VII, um, it's going to look nothing like the reign of any emperor before. Because he he is coming to the throne from a completely different perspective, and he is obstinate enough and idealistic enough to insist on trying to make change, which, again, is 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 where you have to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's you know, funny, there, I is, I definitely felt something of George the Third, you know, Louis the Fourteenth. Is that? Do I have the right Louis uh, there? But the, those kings that were there at sort of the at br- the brink of the end of absolutism, mm-hmm. uh, he seems to be the heir to them. Yes. Après um, uh, uh, le Deluge is Louis the Sixteenth, I think. Sixteenth. Thank you. Um, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, which I might not be, but yes, I mean, again, I was thinking about the French Revolution. And the terrible, terrible mess. And, I mean, 10 years of terror and and bloodshed and just, and so many innocent people getting trampled. And is there a way to to move power around without that? I don't know. I'd like to think so, but mm, I'm not entirely sure, which is why if you if you ask me, I will say, yes, this is a utopianist book. It's not a utopia because obviously this, the, neither of these societies is utopian, but it is utopian thinking in, in that I am positing that Maya would not just be assassinated within a week of taking the, taking the throne. Um, I am positing that he can maybe make changes. I'm, I'm certainly positing that, um, 
the politicians of his court are actually listening to him, which, uh, given given the uh, horrible disadvantage at which he's starting, I actually, you know, historically speaking, that's not very likely. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of ways in which I, I made I made choices that assumed that people are inherently good. Elves or goblins or human beings are inherently good and are all we are all trying to do our best, um, which I would like to believe of the human race, but most days I can't. Um, yeah. And I, I did make choices that said maybe it is possible to avoid the guillotine. Um, you know, maybe it is possible to avoid rioting and um, – you know, rioting and barricades and and all of the terrible things that happened in in that the very rocky transition that historically we have had in governments moving from absolutism to anything else. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. That's that that goes pretty deep. I I think on a on a more positive note, um, I really love the ear thing. I think it's really Thank cute. You. It was um, fun. <laughs> I think that really brought, I know this is totally off what we were just talking about, but I just wanted to get that in there. Before <laughs> just want to lighten, lighten, lighten things up from the guillotine, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I you mean, know, take it to end on a high note. Yours are really cute. I'll be well, honest. And I was, as I'm reading this book and I'm still reading it, I'm looking at my dogs and seeing <laughs> these, these know, expressions like Edra Hasevar the seventh. Yeah. Yes. And I also have this weird thing where I love the I'm listening to the audiobook as well and I love the language so much that I just find myself like saying words in my mind like during the day like Edra Hasavar or Uthalanese court well, or things like that like the words just pop into my head like unbidden um and it's very funny because they're so musical and so pleasant to listen to and even when I see them written on paper I'm like I don't know how to say that but then when I hear it I'm like oh I do know how to say that um so it's been a really it's been a fun experience listening to the audiobook and also well, following along with the discussions on the forums of people trying to figure out how to say things <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it is certainly true that i've i've made the names up based on the sound i mean unthelenese i i worked over that for days trying to get the syllables in, in the right configuration so that it sounded like the word i wanted it to be um, Edra Hasavar was actually really easy, um, but you know Alketh Moret was tricky. Mm-hmm. But I, mm-hmm. but I was. I mean, I was. I really was. I mean, I was making up a language. I could do whatever the hell I wanted. Um, I was the the uh, proper nouns were almost all chosen specifically and intentionally because they sounded really good. Mm-hmm. So you're not wrong. I like that. I like that. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Uh, Tom and I have been enjoying reading the book immensely, and uh, we appreciate it. I know you're probably super busy right now with all the nebula stuff going (laughs) on and and everything in your life, but thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And of course, our show is currently funded entirely by our patrons at patreon.com slash sword and laser. So thank you as well to all the folks who back our show. And if you would like to support us, you can head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. 
You can also support the show by buying books through our links uh, if you want to get The Goblin Emperor or uh, a lot of the things that we talk about on the episodes. Go to swordandlaser.com slash picks. To get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at sword and laser. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash sword and laser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.